1: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Would there have been a third world without the second? Although most historians write about these geopolitical blocks in reference to the West, the interdependence of the second and third worlds remains a historical blind spot. This interconnection was evident in the production of third world literature and cinema vis-a-vis the Soviet-organized Afro-Asians Writers Association and the Tashkent Festival for African, Asian, and Latin American Film. While the cultural alliances between the second and third world never achieved their stated aim, the literary and cinematic independence from the West, they did forge links that allowed the now canonical post-colonial authors, texts, and films to circulate across the non-Western world until the end of the Cold War. Here's Rosson Jigalov with that story. Rosson Jigalov is an assistant professor of Russian at New York University and a member of the editorial collective of Left East. His interests lie in socialist culture globally, and more specifically, in the linkages between cultural producers and audiences in the USSR and abroad. His new book is From Internationalism to Postcolonialism: Literature and Cinema Between the Second and the Third Worlds, published by McGill-Queens University Press. Here's Rosson Jigalov. Okay, so Arasan, it's it's really a pleasure to to talk to you, especially since we've had a lot of kind of communication through social media and internet because of some of the other projects that you're involved in, and I think our shared political outlook. Um, but just to to start our conversation, um, I'd like to have you introduce yourself.
0: Well, first, thank you for having me here, Sean. I've mostly been on the other side of the podcast as an audience member. and I think I've listened to probably 90% of your podcasts and this is how I largely relate to the field. I mean, so it's really a great privilege to to be invited and, uh, you know, as far as my, my background, I was born in Bulgaria and when I was 10 years old, 1989 happened. Um, which very much casts shadow, and not, not uh, only on my life, you know, but probably on my whole generation. And so in my particular case, you know, my, my class uh, in primary school split up into communists and democrats and, uh, you know, two gangs who used to beat, beat each other viciously. Uh, and uh, and I think that has seen different the struggle has continued in different forms you know then I attended Williams college mostly as a science major um, and uh, really it wasn't until uh, probably the end of the end of my second year and, and the summer I had as, a, as an intern in, a, in an astronomy observatory that I realized you know that I'm not you know I was working on this stellar stellar cluster ngc 6652 and I realized you know it had very little to do with my interests you know because astronomy these days is not so much about uh, gazing at the romantic sky but uh, reducing data primarily on a computer unless you' are super good at theory which which I wasn't certainly uh, and so I, you know, by day I was reducing data, running different programs, and at night I was uh, reading the, the Russian classics. And uh, and so I did manage by the end of college to squeeze in a fairly uh, minimal Russian major. By the time I, I finished, I, I knew I, was, I wanted to, to pursue a PhD in Russian or, sla- or comparative literature, but... Uh, really didn't have, have enough background in literature and, and was quite lucky in receiving uh, first a fellowship from my college to spend on my education as I wanted and also I taught uh, uh, English in Moscow and I spent two years, really two unforgettable years at the uh, Russian State University for Humanities. So, you know, it's, it was uh, at the time and in many ways still is an incredible institution, and I realize with hindsight that many of my best ideas now uh, come uh, in overcoming a lot of the assumptions I had gotten, even even though I really imbibed in this uh, Russian liberal intelligentsia uh, narrative, which I am now gradually squeezing out of myself and some of my best, you know, at least to me most interesting I guess come uh, I mean, coming challenging
1: the assumptions I had inherited. You know, let me let me ask you about about that, because I mean I think in a way one can interpret your your book, uh your new book, which is which is titled From Internationalism to Postcolonialism, Literature and Cinema Between the Second and Third Worlds. I mean, in a way, if I if I think about, you know, what you just laid out in your personal background. And your book, I mean, your book seems to be one of those entryways to, you know, dispelling or at least um changing your view of of the source of the Russian intelligentsia, since we tend to think of it in terms of, you know, its engagement with Western thought and Western ideas and even Western politics. So how did you how did you get interested in in the relationship with a literature and film? in the Soviet period, in the Soviet Union and its engagement with third-worldist um, cinema and and literature?
0: I really came to this topic in the archives, you know, because there was really nothing in my studies in Moscow that, that uh, could possibly have picked an interest in, in the topic. You know, because by, by then, this... Uh, of engagement, Soviet engagement with the Third World had been, you know, fairly thoroughly erased and and my teachers at Ergigil were certainly not in any way interested in in reviving it. But but so I was doing my uh, archival research for a somewhat different dissertation. When I came across a number of names in the the archives, of the Soviet Union of Writers and specifically the, its foreign commission. Names that uh, I knew very well from a very different department in my mind, you know, that was the post-colonial literature, and, and these were people like uh, Sembenus Mann, Gugi Vachiongu, Nazim Hikmet, uh, and, uh, and so, for a time this seemed to me in Congress, what, what they were doing in uh, in, in an archive that, that was supposed to be about, about uh, different things and people. But then, you know, these names cropping up, not only in, in the Writers' Union Archive, but also in the uh, Filmmakers' Archive. And I became interested through this archival discovery, unfortunately not through, through any personal experience of this internationalism, even if, you know, with hindsight, if I reconstruct my childhood... There were plenty of uh, instances of this internationalism, like, you know, my brother's multiple uh, friends from medical school who were from Syria, but it was really, the the start was was an archival one, and then I I came across, uh, you know, I I got into, I had to finish my dissertation, uh, but uh, subsequently I entered into a conversation with a number of scholars, both in the slavic field who were working on uh, Soviet third world engagements but but you know maybe even more importantly scholars of uh, of post-colonial literatures and histories and cinemas Uh, it is through these conversations that that was drawn into the into the subject and you know after a good deal of hesitation decided to to make it
1: my book. Sure. Well, let's let's get into some of the issues in your book. Um, your book actually begins, and, and it's all I always find it interesting what people include in, you know, as epigraphs or even in the acknowledgments and things like this, because I think it sets a tone for the type of of, of study that that one is one is or a book that one is engaging. And your book begins with an epigraph from uh, Vinay Prashad. Um, who is a, a very interesting and active voice, uh, in, both in, in contemporary politics, but also in history. Uh, and, and he writes, and, and you quote him saying um, from his book, The Darker Nations, the third world was not a place, it was a project. Uh, and then you go into a kind of rumination about what, what does uh, Prashad's statement mean in terms of how you engage the third world, so why don't you talk about that? This idea of the third world as a project, and and how you you position the third world vis a vis the second world. Uh,
0: so, you know, I've heard this quote many many a time. Uh, subsequently, you know, obviously in, in reference to Prashad, and it's uh, the sentence or the two sentences really frame. The Third World, from our much more traditional understanding of the Third World, A, is the figure of backwardness. So, uh, you know, it's in a Third World country. Uh, it's, it's most common. Use or probably more more neutrally, as uh, Third World is, is the kind of sum of things uh, African, Asian, and Latin American. The three worlds. Uh, what The VJ by contrast means with uh, the Third World as a project is is, uh, really uh, the third world transnational movement that uh, brought together many activists uh, across these three continents. My specific use of it in in the case of third worldist culture is cultural producers and their texts and, and audiences that, that were part of that culture which was uh, fighting obviously against Western colonialism, that was uh, progressively nationalist and, and shared uh, for all its incredible varieties. You know, and we have, you know, this culture spoke numerous languages, it's, it spoke many different idioms, but, uh, but there was a basic socialist core to much of it. Uh, And so I was attempting to reconstruct uh, uh, both the institutions of uh, of that transnational third worldist culture, which which lasted for a few decades in the second half of the 20th century, uh, but also to distill a certain, uh, you know, certain common aesthetic core. And the difficulty, of course, was the extremely fleeting nature of the third world project. Uh, You know, it wasn't... Uh, the commenter, you know, there was no Moscow (laughs) Center with with a good archive, you know, there were numerous uh, often uh, competitive and uh, uh, initiatives that always struggled to connect and always existed in a somewhat subordinate position vis-a-vis the the Western culture that, that still dominated what people were reading or watching. Or otherwise consuming in these three
1: continents. Now, the relationship between the the Soviet system and the third world, of course, uh, it begins in the 1920s and into the 1930s, where anti colonial activists and the Soviet Union uh, begin collaborating, networks forming, and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union supporting and giving resources to anti-colonial and anti-racist struggles, and this was done through the Communist International or the Comintern. Um, so, what is the significance of this period for this later period that you focus, uh, you know, intently on?
0: Yeah, so I end up devoting only one chapter on this into our episode of Soviet cultural and Soviet anti-colonial. Uh, cultural engagements, but in a sense, it's the most important period. Partly because the Soviet uh, state did enjoy at the time in the interwar period uh, a certain monopoly on global anti-colonialism. And and you know it's in itself uh, a very long and complex story. You know that follows all the uh, zigzags of. Of uh, Soviet and communist policies, but very briefly, you know, starting with the S- Russian Civil War and the the Russian Revolution, there is really a great uh, hope for a revolution in the East, in in the Soviet Union, which is reciprocated in many colonial settings, whether India or Egypt or the Far East, uh, reciprocated by way of a somewhat maybe erroneous interpretation of the Bolshevik Revolution in these settings is an anti- fundamentally an anti-colonial revolution among intellectuals and writers in these different colonial settings. So, uh, so they look upon Russia as, as the place where it is at, and uh, Russian culture, whether produced before or the the Bolshevik Revolution or after, and of course, you know, it took a long time for Soviet culture, post-1970 culture, to reach these places, to be translated to. Uh, But but even uh, Russian imperial culture uh, was being read post 1917 as uh, coming, you know, with the scale of the revolution. And hence, you know, it's somehow leading up to it. And, and Russian writers, you know, even you know the paradigmatic liberal Turgenev, or the arch-conservative Dostoevsky, or the anarchist Dostoyevsky, uh, came to to writers of these from these settings as prophets of the of the Bolshevik revolution. And so there was this element of. Reception of, of Russian literature, also as it's, it's a, an Eastern literature, not not quite Western and Eastern literature, that had made it to the world stage, which is something that uh, writers from these settings uh, saw themselves doing, and, and they also love the the role of the Russian uh, writer as a spokesperson for the people, you know, which is which is something uh, they sought to assume for themselves. So they. So even regardless of anything, uh, the the Bolsheviks, did or did not do whatever their intentions were, uh, the the reception of uh, Russian and Soviet history, you know, <laughs> extremely often based on major misunderstandings, but it, extremely productive misunderstandings, that that uh, positioned uh, things Soviet to be be really
1: well received. <laughs> uh, you know what? One of the also things the things that, that fascinated me in going through this year chapter um, is just how many people who emerge as major literary figures in the um, post-war period and during the Cold War actually find themselves passing through Moscow and passing through the Soviet Union at various points in the 1920s and 30s. And really, you know, one of the things that at least I find fascinating about the the common turn, again, regardless of its policies and everything, but it it serves as this interesting space for networking that to bring people from, say, India with Africans, with um, you know, people like Ho Chi Minh, etc., what how po- important was that that to the formation or the beginnings of a, a wider third worldism?
0: Uh yes, uh you know, the common turn, even, even if for it the colonial question, you know, which kept cropping up and then being dropped. But but was, uh, you know, was a priority if, it, you know, decidedly secondary uh, vis-a-vis the European theater, you know, which at the end, uh, in, the, in the second half of the 30s comes to thoroughly displace any concern with, with anti-colonialism. But uh, the yes, your your uh, figure of the Comintern as a network is, is really extremely productive. And whether we think of the Baku Congress of the nineteen twenties, you know, the, the uh, Congress of the Peoples of the East, which did not really leave as much uh, literary traces, I I would have liked it, but was uh, an incredibly potent symbol that is nowadays being rediscovered by by. Scholarship or or the League uh, against uh, Imperialism, you know, which was this uh, comintern uh, front organization led by you know this fascinating figure Willy Münzenberg, uh, uh, you know that uh, that really attempted to unite under uh, colonial activists, many of whom residing in Europe. Uh, under a common platform that was was congruent with common tension policies, and and it really did succeed in bringing some major names to the point that, you know, in 1955, when the story uh, of the Third World really begins, you know, at the Bandung Conference, the whole Sukarno opens with a saying that I have seen many of these faces in Brussels in 1927, at the first Congress of the League Against Imperialism, but really the main institutional structure that, on which I focus in this chapter, which really uh, attract, brought many uh, future uh, post-colonial writers uh, to to the to Moscow was the Communist University for Toilers. of the East, which really didn't have a, any literary section, but simply happened to attract many talented young people who Happened then to to have major literary talents, you know, figures like Nazim Hikmet, uh, who then goes on to become uh, Turkey's premier modernist, uh, but but also many others who my whose trajectories I, I try to trace.
1: Now, in in you know, like I. Like you said, you know, in 1955 with the Bandung Conference and then the beginning of this idea of the Third Worldism, um, the Soviet Union itself uh, under Khrushchev um, begins to, to focus more on, you know, kind of to return to attention to the Third World. And, and granted, a lot of this has, you know, Cold War implications. But also it's an attempt, I think, to renew to some extent the internationalism of this earlier period. And and one of the organizations that comes out of this is uh, the Afro-Asian Writers Association. So so what was this organization and and its importance?
0: Yeah, so the Afro-Asian Writers Association was was an attempt to constitute the literary third world, and because it was uh, it heavily relied on Soviet infrastructure, and also Soviet. Organizational methods of how literary internationalism should be conducted—it it strongly resembled some of the Soviet internationalist literary organizations of the uh, of the interwar period. You know, like the Writers' Association for the Defense of Culture. You know, the the famous uh, anti anti-fascist organization during the the Popular Front period. You know, so. Just like it, you know, it had a, the, the Afraisian Writers Association had this international literary magazine, you know, issued in multiple languages. In that in this case, you know, this was called Lotus, uh, that came out in English, French, Arabic, and there were perennial plans for a Russian version which never never panned out. You know, there was there was series of congresses, the writers' congresses. Uh, just as in the interwar period, you know, now called Afro-Asian Writers' Congresses, you know, that started in Tashkent in 1958 uh, and ended, I think, at the 7th or 8th Congress in in Tunis, 1988. There was uh, a permanent headquarters, um, initially based in Colombo, in Sri Lanka. Uh, but when the Colombo headquarters was co-opted by, uh, by Maoists during the Sino-Soviet conflict and began to, <laughs> to issue condemnations and anathema supporting Soviet, uh, you know, they, they had to reset a little bit the, the, whole, the whole thing. And, uh, and so it started with a new headquarters in, in Cairo, and this Cairo-Moscow Access became, became central to this to the Afro-Asian writers movement. Uh, there was, of course, also a, a literary prize. You know, the Lotus Prize, essentially the uh, the literary the, the Afro-Asian equivalent for the Nobel Prize, which writers from these two continents weren't uh, really receiving at the time. So, uh, so this conference, you know, through its regular congresses and uh, um, prizes. Transnational publication, also a major translation effort to translate uh, African writers in Asia and vice versa. It's uh, really um, try to create a, a sense of a common imagined community uh, among third world readers. Of course, uh, in, all, in all these efforts, and you know, despite uh, Soviet. And the writing of much much of them, you know, when the Soviet Union participated in these, uh, you know, really in third-worldist initiatives by its Central Asian republics, Uzbek uh, writers were fairly central to uh, to the leadership of the Afro-Asian Writers Association. So, uh, but despite uh, Soviet uh, infrastructure and resources and the prestige of the third world had at the time, you know, it never came quite to achieve its stated aim of uh, achieving a literary uh, emancipation from from Western literature, Western tastes, and um, essentially overcoming the uh, the monopoly the colonial metropolis of London, Paris, uh, increasingly New York had in, in determining internationally who's who's the world writer. Uh, who's not? But but it gets uh, and you know if if now people in India you know are able to read the uh, uh, African literature is is not the is not necessarily thanks to uh, to British uh, common colonial history, but but also to the successes of of this association in connecting. Uh, what uh, what Ngugi Batyongu called the links that bind us, uh, direct literary
1: r- relations. Um, you know, this is this is what actually is 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 really interesting too about about this um, you know, Afro Asian Writers Association its relationship to the Soviet Union. So, what kinds of um in like literary influences in terms of tropes and narratives. A uh, cross between these two, the third world and the, you know, second world.
0: Um. So you know, I, I talked about uh, how Russian and Soviet literature were, uh, were read at least in the, uh, in the interwar period in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and now, uh, you know, this this has been study of extended study of reception. Russian and Soviet texts in, in third world context has been really taken up by by scholars. Uh, so, you know, as Russian texts were were actually uh, reaching in translation or via Western European languages uh, uh, They were reaching third world audiences, and so were some common Soviet literary tropes, uh, you know, which, which of course arrived... Uh, in the in the wrong chronological order, you know, very much like the story of of uh, Russia's own literature in the in the first half of the uh, of the nineteenth century, when so much of Western literature came in translation or in original, with uh, with without the proper context and uh, and with completely mixed periods. But uh, but certain uh, Soviet tropes, like the utopia topus. Uh, you know, which which is often evoked in the socialist realist novel as a as a way of motivating some of the weaker member and members of the community at a time when the positive hero faces the greatest amount of resistance. Positive hero or well, his wise party advisor uh, brings up the possibility of this utopia. You know, so in in a number of third world novels, this becomes the foreign utopia topus. You know, often a a reference to the Soviet Union itself, uh, and subsequently when, you know, it's a place that uh, community wavering could could uh, uh, aim for. And, uh, and so, you know, you can see that in the writings of many uh, socialist and radical t- uh, writers in the uh, third world, you know who, and, and after the Soviet Union <laughs> lost its luster a little bit in in the seventies and eighties, uh, that that topic came to be increasingly replaced, you know, whether by China, uh, or or a reference to the Third World itself, where the action was uh, really at, you know, which had become this this major force of uh, anti-colonialism that, that the Soviet Union used to be during the the era. Uh, other sets of tropes, and I'll briefly ma- mention the chain narratives uh, which you often find in, in Latin American or sometimes African African novels, uh, which uh, attempt to link uh, resource extraction in Latin America with the consequent devastation and destruction of, of human life and environment to corporate boardrooms, often mediated by an entrepreneur bourgeoisie in cahoots with the local government. So these narratives help construct uh, essentially a, <laughs> a literary equivalent to a world systems theory that that, that help uh, place. I
1: And I, I can see some of the, the germation, you know, the the beginnings of, you know, post-colonial theory as well, right? There, they're being kind of posited um, that will become you know, more theoretically developed. But nonetheless, it seems to to set some of the groundwork for that.
0: Yes, and, and in many ways, even though post-colonial theory mostly tends to date itself after so its uh, 1978 Orientalism, uh, in a sense, a lot of the groundwork Theoretical or especially practical uh, was really done by these third well, worldist intellectuals and, uh, and writers and thinkers, uh, often uh, who were often in conversation, uh, if not with the, with the Soviet Union necessarily, then, then with Marxist ideas. And so, you know, they often, in some quarters of post colonial studies this erasure of this prehistory. That, you know, I'm, I'm trying to restore the essentially pre-Orientalism history
1: of, of its ideas. Now, you know, like like the Comintern period, uh, these um, organizations like the Afro-Asian Writers Association, the film festival that took place in Tashkent every year, this, like the Comintern, uh, were spaces of, you know, people-to-people relations, the formation of intellectual and political networks. And what's interesting though about the post-war period or the, the Cold War period is that, as you said, central the Central Asian republics are really the center for a lot of this interaction. Um, so talk about the, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the relationship to, say, Soviet ethnic minorities with uh and and as you said you know a lot of these organizations um the leaders tended to be from central asian republics so i'm, I'm really curious what was the the role of the relationship between say soviet ethnic minorities from central asia in particular to these third worldist writers and intellectuals uh,
0: and that role emerges gradually in the in the interwar period with the arrival of even a whole group of African-Americans, you know, who, who get their conhos. Uh, I forget in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, you have to correct me on this. Uh, or, you know, obviously Langston Hughes' memoir of, of travel in Central Asia, which uh, so uh, heavily impressed him despite, you know, his perennial ironic tone. It's a place where people of, uh, of different color can... And ethnicity and King coexisted in a way that was quite distinct from, from his experience in the States. And, and that was uh, really during the Cold War period, uh, that role of Central and to less extent the Caucasus as a kind of a Soviet showcase space for, for the Third World was, was really much, much more institutionalized. And so Central Asia is the typical setting of the writers' conferences that I I mentioned for the Tashkent Film Festival, which uh, started in 1968, you know, and was well this biennial uh, event until until its last edition in 1988. So the important thing, of course, was that the real hosts uh, and the audiences were not some European, you know, Russian writer based in Moscow, but but the Uzbek filmmakers or Uzbek or Kazakh writers, and the and the films, uh, the festival would be seen by really a very multinational Uzbek audience, uh, which which really had a very comforting effect on third world visitors to to these conferences. So or festivals, you know, that to a much larger extent, able to identify with the people of, uh, of Soviet Uzbekistan than, than they would have been able to do uh, in Moscow. And so, you know, Central Asian landscapes, Central Asian writers and audiences are fairly central to the story as a kind of a Soviet interface to third world culture. But, uh, you know, also Moscow was quite important, especially with a few literary or cinematic institutions like VGIK, the all Soviet film school, which, which trained really a number of, of leading African film, uh, filmmakers. or is, you know, also most, most of, uh, of the best Syrian filmmakers are still geek alumni you know it, its effect was highly different in different countries i mean in, in some spaces like this you know it, geek was a major contribution to, to cinematic training in latin america where with which the soviet union had fewer institutional links or places like india which had a very well-developed uh, film industry obviously geek Graduates couldn't quite break in into that that market, and also they were often viewed with suspicion. You know when they tried to return uh, to return home with the Soviet diploma. You know if, if you happen to be uh, returning to a, a not so uh, pro-Soviet country. You know something that they didn't get to write about is the literary institutes or maybe the higher courses, of, uh, high literary courses also in Moscow, which trained uh, such uh, writers. You know, this is a, an even stranger part of the story that, uh, you know, obviously none of Ismail Kadare or Sunala Ibrahim, the Egyptian writer, or the Nigerian poet, none of them wrote in Russian, and yet they received a formal literary training in Moscow. And there's also, you know, there are also cases like Ngugi Wa who has this poignant essay about the six months. You know Ngugi Wa for those who don't know him, being the uh, one of the major sub-Saharan African writers. that's of post-colonialism, it's Irvine, you know. But he, he has this poignant essay about the six months he spent at Czechos House, a Soviet writer's rest home in Yalta, where he. Finished his best-known novel, Petals of Blood, I think, in 1975. So, so there were notable comings and goings. Uh, you know, not to mention the Soviet writers visiting these three continents that really seemed to us uh, unimaginable right now. When, when really, if if you know, none of these uh, writers is being translated, let alone, uh, or not, or not, not even these writers, you know, African or Asian writers is being translated in, in contemporary uh, Russia.
1: And this is one of the things that um, I, I found really profound in your book, uh, of course, speaking as a historian of the Soviet period. And that, you know, and you state this in your introduction that looking at Soviet history through the Third World actually gives us a different understanding and a different narrative of that history and and the the cultural history of the Soviet Union. Um, In particular, like for example, you note that, say, take 1956 or Hungary or even 1968 in Czechoslovakia, they don't have the same kind of resonance in the Third World as say they do in the west of course so what is the what what different understanding of the soviet period do you do you take from your study
0: so we are familiar you know as western Slavists, we are familiar uh, we are, we are used to looking at the soviet union through a, a certain set of tropes you know mostly to do with soviet western engagements and that has also been Uh, really the bulk of the historiography uh, of the period, you know. So it's a story, you know, of Stalinism, of uh, Khrushchev's reforms, then openness to the West, uh, dissidents, then creeping Stalinization during the Brezhnev period, underground culture, and um, none of these historiographical points are uh, are quite relevant for the Soviet third world uh, engagements, which has a very different kind of periodization and is subject to a very different numbers, number of terms. So, so you know, part of the idea uh, for for this, has, and, and I'm really certainly part of a, a whole cohort of historians, you know, like, like Mark James um, uh, and, and many others, you know, is to deprovincialize Soviet history from this... Uh, relationship with the West uh, and, and make it restore some of the global connectivities you know that may have been erased from much of our memory and may not be taking place right now but uh, but really that, that made the Soviet state and Soviet culture East European uh, states and, and culture really global actors in the ways that they they, they were, you know during the Cold War, but but uh, really appear increasingly less so uh, less so in
1: scholarship. And, and finally, um, <laughs> I, I found this quite actually a little, a little bit funny and and quite self-reflective on your part. but you, the other thing you begin your book with is this scene um, where after you give a talk at the Institute of Oriental Studies in Moscow, the first question you get from the audience is, but who needs this? Like, what's the point of all of this? Like, why is basically why is your work important? And especially since, as you noted uh, repeatedly in our conversation today, that you know none of this stuff is is been forgotten, um, none of it's being done. In fact, as you said rightly said, it's it's almost impossible, or I should say, it is impossible to imagine it occurring today. So, you know, how do you answer that question? But who needs this?
0: You know, it's always a struggle to be honest, Sean and I haven't produced a, uh, a good answer. But uh, but really, you know, the, the saddest thing is that this answer, this question probably originates mostly, you know, within Russian academia or or you know, a general public that were at the epicenter of those engage, engagements uh, and. Uh, them, you know, the, the cultural byproducts of this failed alliance are at least relevant. And, and the irony is that, the, you know, Russian scholars you know, who have the easiest access to, to those archives are really, and, and also for a good deal of personal and cultural memory of those interactions, are, are really much better positioned to, to write those histories than, you know, Western scholars, you know, who. Like me, who may have gotten this idea from uh, the, the overall interest in post colonial studies, uh, where, where paradoxically the interest in Soviet third world engagements is much, much stronger. So, but uh, really the erasure uh, and forgetting uh, you know, that, that has taken place in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, Probably in a better place like Moscow, you know, there's still some institutions like Institute of Oriental Studies, you know, that do have some, some expertise, uh, you know, even, even though that's really a shadow of, of its former, former self, uh, you know, it's, uh, the person who asked this question, who needs this now, you know, went on to qualify that her department at the Institute of Oriental Studies had, uh, you know, her department being the sector for the literatures of the East, you know, had over 40 scholars working in it, you know, specializing in all sorts of different languages uh, and producing a lot of scholarship. Uh, Nowadays, you know, there were uh, less uh, only eight of them and most of them in, in a semi-retired status and and some of the languages that they had been working on had uh, really not, really not being taught in, uh, in Russia anymore some of the radio Moscow which used to broadcast uh, for which some of them were consultants, you know, which used to broadcast in 70 uh, something languages with a full set of literary programming and uh, you know, really incredibly important for the reception of Russian literature and, and culture um, in, in in the three continents. You know, it's, it's really reduced to this propagandistic uh, Sputnik uh, radio. So, and this is to say nothing of, of uh, the thorough lack of translation of uh, writers from from these uh, three continents. Uh, you know, which, uh, which have really disappeared from from bookstores or or uh, films. You know, because as you know, some of the uh, most beloved Soviet uh, films screened in the Soviet Union were from places like India or Latin America. Uh, in, or you know, and these are of course popular, f- maybe for problematic set of reasons. Uh, the combination of the genre of melodrama and, and Soviet discomfort with uh, or censorship of, of its own melodramatic production, but but it's really the erasure has been quite thoroughgoing. And also, uh, I do think the the other set of people who do need this this narrative post-colonial uh, scholars. for whom the Soviet archives really called this
1: treasure trove. That was Rossin Jigalov. Rossin Jigalov is an assistant professor of Russian at New York University and a member of the editorial collective of Left East. His interests lie in socialist culture globally, and more specifically, in the linkages between cultural producers and audiences in the USSR and abroad. His new book is... From Internationalism to postcolonialism, Literature and Cinema Between the Second and the Third Worlds, published by McGill-Queens University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gilring and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. oko ni yo kangeli ngai ni